Hi everyone, this is Holly Herndon. I'm Matt Dryhurst. And you're listening to Interdependence. Good. How are you? We're, we're, we're great. I'm in sunny San Francisco. No complaints over here. Uh, I'm Luke, by the way. <laughs> yeah, and this is Adam from Los Angeles. Well, wonderful. Thanks for joining us. I'm glad that you're enjoying uh, wonderful weather. We're also in San Francisco currently, and don't regret it for a second. It's uh, really quite nice, particularly looking at you know what the what the alternative in Berlin would be right now. I wonder for... Those who are completely unfamiliar with you, would you mind giving a little introduction to yourselves, maybe personally, and then we'll start talking about context after? Yeah. Sure. Why don't you go first, Adam? Okay. So my name is Adam Ludwin. I am a co-founder of Context along with Luke. I've been working in and around crypto since about 2012 when I was a VC. I did the VC thing early in my career, and then I did the entrepreneur thing second, sort of inverse. But it was it was early enough that I remember as a VC sitting at my desk and trying to find this founder named Satoshi Nakamoto on LinkedIn <laughs> and <laughs> looking on LinkedIn Japan to see, sort of figure out who this was <laughs> and whether he might be interested in, in raising some capital. So, wow. um, so that that led me to eventually starting a company called Chain that I worked on for about five years and was acquired by Stellar in around 2018. And then after a hiatus from crypto, in which I met Luke, working with Dom Hoffman and Luke at Byte, after that company was acquired, Luke and I sort of went off into the wilderness again and then decided to build context. So maybe I'll pause there and let Luke say more about himself. Just in advance of that, I do have to ask, did you get any responses from any Satoshi Nakamoto? (laughs) None none nearly as... um, as exciting as the bona fide. Yeah, so I, I do not know who he is or who she is or who they are, uh, unfortunately. <laughs> okay, great. So Luke. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So yeah, my name is Luke Miles. I also go by worm emoji on Twitter. That's like my moniker. And yeah, so I'm, I'm the technical co-founder of Context. I've worked at uh, companies like you know Stripe and Byte before, kind of just doing random software engineering stuff. Also started a company in the e-commerce space before that, selling sneakers online as a mobile app, basically, is what, what, what my first company was. And actually kind of feels like there's some overlap or similarities between sneaker drop culture and how people are going you know, kind of obsessive over NFTs these days. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I've, I've always been really interested in figuring out how to thread culture or interesting art things in my career with my interest in technology. When I was 16, I was super, super into photography. And it was clear to me that I was either going to become like a photographer or a, a software engineer. <laughs> and <laughs> it turns out like one paid more than the other. And so, mm-hmm. uh, but I, I always think that figuring out how to get, you know, creators paid or, you know, culture, things of cultural interest, promoting that to more people is always just such a fascination of mine. And uh, yeah, so that's kind of my background in 
started context after meeting Adam and I had a few like light bulb moments after not really understanding NFTs at first and <laughs> jumping in just fully loving it and kind of obsessively following everything. Yep. Is there, can you tell us what one of those light bulb moments were? Yeah, I think that's a great thing to establish actually, because we've had this conversation prior of you starting out kind of an NFT skeptic. And I'm really curious <laughs> uh, for both of you, actually, what the moment was where, if there was a moment for for you, Adam, what the moment was where all of a sudden you're like, ah. I love it. For me, it was, you know, it was this thing where I think I had a bit too much of like, you know, the web two skeptic hacker news audience on my brain when I first encountered NFTs. Like, I think I remember being on a call with Adam, maybe, you know, when he was first telling me about NFTs, thinking like, or telling him that, I mean, aren't all these, these are all securities, right? Like everyone's going to go to jail, right? This is, <laughs> this isn't going to work. And I think the thing that really helped me understand or a big part of my journey towards loving NFTs, it was just realizing that, you know, the biggest part of NFTs and what they enable is on-chain provenance. And as someone who's, you know, spent a lot of time looking at sneakers and understanding how like pernicious, you know, inauthentic sneakers or clothes like that are, and understanding that provenance is so key, that just became deeply interesting to me. And like actually this, about a year ago, like kind of on the dot, I had a, a big breakthrough moment where David Rudnick released a STEM NFT, this this drawing of a rose on Zora. Mm -hmm. And there was a tweet that Zora made saying, you know, congrats to David for selling the STEM for, you know, some, some amount of money. And I thought that was cool. But then someone I know took a screenshot of it, I think Brian, and he said, oh, that's crazy. I just got it for free. And then Brian minted that as an NFT and sold it to David. And I thought that that was just such a funny moment that like kind of explains why provenance matters. And like, mm -hmm. that was just a really cool interaction only enabled by Web3. And so just seeing like all of those, you know, interactions on the journey to like seeing provenance as this really useful, useful thing was really formative in my personal experience and also formative in what we want to do at Context. Yeah. That's really yeah. great because that same story could have the opposite effect on someone. <laughs> well, that, yeah. that, I think that's the that's the conceptual leap you have to make yeah. where you're like, oh, right click save as is a feature. Yeah. You're like, okay, sorry, Adam, you were about <laughs> to jump in. We're <laughs> no, no, no. I, I think you're. That's such an important point. And actually, it's interesting. You can almost you almost know where someone is on their journey of going down the rabbit hole by what questions they're asking. Mm -hmm. I, I had a similar moment where as I was kind of sort of getting back into crypto and looking at NFTs, it, basically like a year and a half ago, I, I my first intuition was, okay, NFTs are interesting because now we can do the sort of net art electric objects, put an animated GIF on your wall and when people come through your home, you can say that's mine, right? Yep. And it's like authentically mine. And actually when I was investing a decade ago, I inv invested in a company called Electric Objects mm -hmm. and I was involved with the sort of New York net art seven on seven crowd. And mm -hmm. there was a whole mm -hmm. movement that I know you all, I uh, think you know a lot of the same people and were involved as well, like of just absolutely no monetization, but just like a ton of enthusiasm around the potential there and of like bringing digital art into the mainstream of what 
art is about and, 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 and trying to figure out monetization. And so that's where I started. And as I started to talk with entrepreneurs building companies like Super Rare and Foundation and really doing the more interesting work, I realized that 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 wasn't right, that that wasn't what this was going to be about. It was just like, as Luke mentioned, it was going to be more about the the, the, the inverse relationship of actually the, the more widely it's consumed, the more valuable the thing will be. Not, 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 it's not about having the one thing and locking it down. It's about, it's about provenance. I'd say the, the specific work that really made me want to spend my waking hours on NFTs and, and, and make this my main thing was actually probably Robbie Barrett's AI generated nude portrait one. And, and I think, and that's on super rare if people want to go see that. I, I think there were two things that struck me about it. One was, wow, like this is selling for a lot of money, which I think was an important signal then because it was in that first set of works that were really generating like real, real, real value, monetary value. And, and so that was just like an important thing to learn. And then the second was, it felt like a work that made sense in this new medium, Mm -hmm. the the, the sort of alignment between the AI generated and sort of digitally native works and and NFTs was going to be important And, and simply printing this out and putting on the wall, it's beautiful. But the fact that it, it, it sort of like, is it's part of this new wave of what's possible with art and AI. And it's being, mm-hmm. it's being minted on this new medium that that kind of relationship just felt really powerful. So that, that was the one for me that, that made me want to spend all my time working in, uh, on NFTs. Adam, Adam, you said something kind of interesting too in your journey that I think might be worth discussing, which is, you know, you said that maybe your first thought was that NFTs are interesting because they allow you to like prove you own the art on your wall. And I'm, I'm curious your thoughts here too, because I, I increasingly think that while provenance is important, it's not really about showing people you own the thing much as like participating in the space. And I don't have a fully formed thought here, but I, it is changing. Like I, I, I thought it was silly at first to be like, yeah, I own that JPEG. And it turns out that it's not really what that's about because that's almost like a too skeuomorphic way of thinking about it. I don't know if you have thoughts here. Yeah. Uh, anyone else? Yeah. Yeah. I, I guess I would, I agree. I would say it's uh, one step up from that. It's it's about feeling like you're part of a community of people who appreciate that thing and you're you're mm-hmm. staking in a way. And it, you're, you're, it's, it's almost like the super like, you know, if Web2 is about the like, Web three in many ways is about this super like, and, and this staking of of either, whether it's desire, or conviction, or just wanting to feel part of something. You can do that much more deeply than you could before the thing had a digital materiality to it. And now that thing, there is this materiality that you can that you can that's sort of tangible, even though it's digital, it's still tangible. You can be that much more a part of a particular artist story or a particular community. And that feeling is palpable. And I think most people that criticize NFTs have just never felt that. They just haven't mm-hmm. had that feeling of, wow, like I did this series of clicks on my computer, but I feel connected to this work or this community. And the true test of that is you don't really want to sell the thing, mm-hmm. even for a higher price many times, right? So because you feel this connection and belonging as a result of the me- the, the change in the medium. So yeah, it, 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 
it's it's definitely more than hanging it on your wall. It's definitely more than simply quote unquote owning it and seeing your name next to the the asset on the blockchain. Yeah, th- that makes a lot of sense. There's a couple of things you brought up that make a lot of sense to me. I mean, first off, the the whole idea of owning something, right? Like the the traditional mode of owning something, right? If you think about like traditional art patronage there is this kind of idea of being like, yeah, like I have a Picasso on my wall and if you can only see it, if you come into my apartment, that seems very different to this form of ownership. I'd argue in in many cases, it's more closely aligned to the idea of being almost like a, a patron of the arts, right? Like I have contributed to the, the birthing of something and my name is on the wall, right? Everybody can see the work but I am kind of associated with the genesis of this work. And on top of that, I remember there's someone that we'd love to have on the podcast who I I was in a meeting with years ago. He's like a music academic who we were in like a meeting related at the time to like GDPR and some weird streaming debate in Germany. And he jumped forward. I was, I was kind of putting forward an argument and he jumped forward and he was like, well, here's the thing. Like, Everyone who loves music thinks that everyone in the world cares deeply about music. But my research shows, for example, that it was something ridiculous, like 50% of vinyl is like never opened. And that actually when petitioned, a lot of people who wanted to participate in vinyl trade did so because they wanted to be perceived as somebody who supported vinyl and participated in that culture. It was less about kind of owning this thing and like going home and unwrapping it, like all the romantic things we associate with record buying it was more just the ability to participate in what was then a brick and mortar real kind of very visible subculture well, it's, it's I, a signaling mechanism right like when you is. go over to someone's house you want to see that they have a bookshelf with books you also wanted to see that they had a record collection and kind of show that you were involved in culture and totally and and this is probably where it intersects a little bit with with drop culture where luke uh, we definitely have some years on you and you you have more experience of this but you know there was a period of time when I was really young and it was like, I could only afford to either buy the vinyl or buy the t-shirt. And every single time I bought the t-shirt and it was because it was something that you could carry with you. And, you know, you could kind of build your profile and you just got more mileage out of it because people then were able to see you in real space and see that you support and advocate for this thing. And I feel like that dynamic is very, very pregnant in this space. And on top of that, like, the, what you mentioned about Robbie Barrett, like shout out Robbie Barrett, who of course now is a, a famous NFT skeptic. <laughs> but, yes, amazingly. But, yeah. but, there's, but there's something there's something also really true about that where, you know, dealing with provenance and dealing with this kind of sticky challenge of digital ownership makes so much sense when you're dealing with these techniques and art forms that are, for want of a better term, like digitally native, right? Like ML work, same you can say with like, you know, the, the art blocks community, which has its genesis in like generative work, largely from like the processing tradition or whatever. There's something that makes so much sense about building a different ecosystem of support and patronage around these very native practices that maybe 20 years ago were quite niche. But at this point in time, particularly if you're younger, are just everywhere. Like that, that aspect to me just feels, feels kind of like a no brainer. Couldn't agree more. I, 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 I'd love to speak for a moment to, I think Robbie is a good representative of some of the, the NFT skepticism around. Or, um, or Robin Sloan, who did one of my yeah. favorite NFT projects mm-hmm. and now like just yeah. does not like the space. Yeah, <laughs> I, I think there's like, there's sort of like two pillars, right, of discontent. One is the environmental impacts and the second is the speculative nature 
of NFTs and crypto broadly. I don't know if you want to have a whole conversation about <laughs> about one or either of these, but we, just like, go ahead. Go sorry, ahead. go ahead. No, I was just going to say, we've recorded entire episodes about some of these topics, so we don't yeah. have to necessarily dive into it. But I would say the environmental thing we've pretty, pretty heavily, like strongly covered. The speculation <laughs> component, though, I think is really but, worth. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Sure. Yeah. So maybe just like a word that on spec speculation, I think this is actually a criticism of crypto broadly, that there are there's so much speculation and that there are so many um, scams and, and fraud and so on. And I think what, one of the things that people don't first appreciate or, or recognize is that the nature of this innovation is fundamentally monetary and property. We've, we've not yet, we, we really haven't had a transformation in the nature of money or a transformation in the nature of property, property law, property rights in our lifetimes, in many lifetimes. It's just, it's been a slow moving field or, or reality. And then it changed fundamentally overnight. And, and it really did change overnight. I mean, we're, we're five years in or 10 years in, if you want to be generous to what's happening. And so be, because the nature of the technology itself is money and the nature of NFTs are that they're property, you're going to see speculation. You're going to see manias, you're going to see booms and busts. And 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 especially because the 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 speed of the transformation is so dramatic. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I think it's easy, it's just easy to like to, to sort of get dismayed by that if you don't have the big picture in mind, if you don't see what's truly valuable and important here, which is to say like just the totally permissionless innovation and experimentation and composability of experiments that's happening. So yeah, yes, it can be disheartening, but I, I think it's like, it's just worth remembering that like we are dealing with money and value and property itself here. It, it's unlike every other transformation of media, of communication, of computation that, that, that we've had in, in the sort of internet revolution. We're now dealing with, with money itself. And so of course, money itself brings with it as sort of a, a lot, you get along for the ride, this baggage of all of these very human downsides that have always and for and will always be associated with money. And, and so for some, they don't have the stomach for it. And that's understandable. But I, I don't think it's a valid criticism to, to say, well, I see greed, and I see hubris, and I see mania, and I see speculation. Well, then frankly, you weren't really looking at what money was and how it always has been or what finance mm -hmm. financial markets and the economy has always had. You've just been willing to live in a kind of bubble ignoring that, but now you're confronted with it. And, and so if anything, there's a more honest confrontation that we're having now that this, these things are playing out in such an extremely transparent way. And I think we get to the other side better off, but, but I, I know that that might just be a, a hopelessly optimistic way of looking at it too. I think you're completely right on that point. There is a kind of QT's component where, you know, one of the kind of like web two is a, is a very sanitized space, largely because it's a really regulated and controlled space by central actors who are sanitizing it for you. Right. And I do feel like in this transitional period that we've seen, you're exactly right. Like, one of the features of this space is the transparency and legibility of it. And I'm guessing we're going to talk a whole bunch about legibility in relation to context, which I promise we will talk to you about at some point. But I think it's exactly that. There's this kind of like shock of 
not necessarily shock of the new, but just shock of the nude. How about we do that? We'll put it, <laughs> the, yeah, the shock of the nude, right? Where all of a sudden these things, because I can say that, I mean, you know, Holly and I have been professional artists for the best part of a decade, right? Where, we, where art has been our full-time job. And a lot of the kind of, let's say, stratification that people are um, upset about related to what they're seeing, like most important seeing through NFT transactions is no surprise to us whatsoever, right? Like we know through being intimately familiar with professional arts, we know that this person gets paid 10 times more than this person. and that This person gets paid 10 times less than even that person, right? That, that, but all of that was was removed from from people's observation and and ultimately i agree i think ultimately because on instagram everyone's killing it well exactly instagram pretend land right like web 2 is pretend land where everyone's killing it you can soup the numbers when it gets down to to the brass tacks when it gets down to like hard hard numbers there is a real cold shower to presenting people with that kind of inequality but fundamentally i think that that is good not necessarily inequality is good but the ultimately being able to see that and most importantly, being able to make the right life decisions for yourself based on hard numbers that you can analyze, that you can read, and we'll get to context in a bit, I think is is fundamentally a net good from where we were, where all this speculation was happening, all this kind of unequal transfer of resources and money and access was already occurring. It just was occurring outside of the purview of a very small group of professionalized artists. So just just confirming that I think what you're saying is absolutely true. And that ultimately, you know, if you have cooties, you're always going to have cooties, you know, but but through this, through this, there's there's a great deal. There's a great deal more. There's a great deal more that can be accomplished. And I think, yeah, transparency isn't that good. I think the yeah. question is, like, how do we kind of embrace this kind of transparency without letting it kind of dominate every conversation? So there has to be kind of a balancing act. In exactly. That. Yeah, I, I think a great example of this was that there was this recent controversy about how for the Bored Ape Club, which is, you know, this massively successful NFT collection, one of the highest valued, if not the highest valued NFT collections, the artist, you know, was paid in relative terms to what these NFTs are worth a pittance. And, you know, definitely a lot of people use this example as something to say, hey, you know, NFTs aren't really about paying artists. Look at this artist. She wasn't really paid at all. But, you know, the fact that we're even having this conversation, yep. I think points to not only, I, I want to say there's there's something valuable in everything you just said about how, you know, like the transparency is, you know, revealing or the, the I think the, the, the fear of the nude is a really elegant way of putting it. I think I know what you're saying. And I mean, we discussed this, I forget what podcast we were we were discussing this on. Oh, it was with Carl McDonald. It was kind of a critical conversation mm -hmm. around NFTs. And he was leveling the accusation, which I think is fair enough. And you hear it quite commonly of saying, you know, well, you know, just because it's transparent doesn't mean it's going to be fair. And my rebuttal at that point in time was being like, no, I don't think that transparency is going to make anything more fair. I don't think that a decentralized internet is going to magically you know, turn everybody into a good person. But I do think that, that open uh, and transparent blockchains make fairness more transparent, right? That ultimately, you know, when you look at, for example, the Bored Ape example, or other people, you know, cutting their collaborators into splits and contracts, the fact that you can see good examples where people are fairly attributing and compensating their collaborators 
is massive. And that fundamentally over time, that opens up the possibility for some kind of a discourse or some kind of standard setting in which it's an expectation that you don't screw over your collaborators, right? And so I think... And and that speaks to this other really important point that I think I was trying to get at a moment ago, which is like, this all means that the the liquidity of NFTs and the fact that there is a market and the fact that people are speculating is actually a lot more of a feature than a bug because... Mm -hmm. The fact that things are so liquid, the fact that there's enforced royalty splits on all of the major venues NFTs are mm-hmm. sold, the fact that you can be transparent about how you pay your collaborators, all of this means that, like, yeah, the, as Adam was saying earlier, that the primary innovation in a lot of blockchain is financial, but we now have these tools to leverage them to, you know, kind of build these really vibrant and rich, you know, collaborative experiences where everyone can get paid. and. I think liquidity of NFTs is it's scary to people that you you have a thing like, you know, a floor price or you have things like numbers next to art that update in real time. But I think that there's something really valuable there. And also, I think that also speaks to some of the initiatives that you, you all are working on, like channel, where you're actually trying to imagine what a fair and free distribution for content would look like, you know, crowdfunding via NFTs and moving to those directions, I think you're really leveraging the fact that you have a community of people who want to support you and you can do these things out in the open and asking the question of how to fund things in a new way is super interesting to me. Yeah. One other thought on, you know, speculation equal, equal bad is the, the nature of these crypto networks and the crypto ecosystems and now NFT and Web3 ecosystems that I think everyone should kind of get comfortable with is that there are these like brutally Darwinian ecosystems where the assumption is almost that everything will get tried that can be can be tried. Mm-hmm. That's what's beautiful about them. Mm-hmm. Like anyone can try anything they want to. <laughs> and <laughs> and almost like anything that could be tried will be tried. It's like it's like uh it's almost like multiverse thinking. It's like there is yeah. going to be a version of every you know board ape in every possible configuration, and then there will be like a bored crocodile and a, a bored unicorn. And so it's, like, it's all going to exist out there. But then by virtue of, you know, the, the, what, so what's the corrective mechanism? Like what, what mm-hmm. is the natural selection? Like that leads to then something really powerful on the other side. That's what speculation is, right? Mm-hmm. You have people basically placing their bets and saying, I actually think this has value. And other people saying, I don't think so. And that's fine, you know? So you, you basically can choose to, participate in the messy middle of speculating mm-hmm. on what might emerge that has value. Or you can also just stay on the sidelines or just be like, it's not for me, but you'll still benefit from whatever comes out on the other end. And we know this is true because we've already seen it play out once in in a sort of the second wave of crypto. So there's a, sort of the Bitcoin wave, then the sort of Ethereum and DeFi wave. And now we're in this third kind of NFT wave. And we have already seen the emergence of incredibly powerful decentralized financial services that mm-hmm. provide lending, options, derivatives, stable coins, and so on that are starting now to become truly meaningful and, and useful. But there were thousands, tens of thousands of projects that didn't make it. <laughs> and, yeah. and, and, and a lot of money that people lost speculating on them 
And, and the, the small minority that really did come out the other side are, are starting to really bear fruit. And so, you know, we're in that, we're in that stage now with, with, with sort of the media and arts on Web3. But for anyone who has spent even a year following, I mean, if you looked at the art on Rarible yep. a year ago, yep. and you look now at the projects that are coming out, I mean, if you saw like the David Rudnick works that were released yesterday, I mean, the, in, the span of, in the span of one year, the quality that we have, that, that, that sort of the distance we've traveled and the incredible work that's being produced by artists, I think already sort of proves out that thesis that you may not like the messy middle portion, you may not like the speculative kind of Darwinian contest, but you have to acknowledge the what what what's coming out the other side is some tr truly works and and so anyway that that's the end of my rant on speculation is actually good yeah no i agree with that i mean i think sometimes it's difficult to communicate like i promise interesting experiments are coming you just have to kind of give it a chance because a lot of people just see the kind of first iteration and then they um, are turned off but to speak to your other point about kind of agency i think that's a, a really big piece of the puzzle here it's you know coming from music I feel like the music community got so used to being told what kind of terms that, that their art could function under. And we got really used to this kind of one-size-fits-all scenario that, you know, honestly doesn't work for all of the world's music. So, but once, you're, once you kind of regain some of that agency, then you have to decide, okay, what kind of mechanics do work? How do I want to interface with the marketplace? And those are really difficult questions, but it's also really exciting, obviously, because then you start to see, you know, different solutions emerge. And yeah, that's one of the things that I like the most about this space is that it, it's not this kind of like top down one size fits all that if you don't like, you know, a certain kind of platform or a certain kind of mechanic, you can either fork it or you can go somewhere else. You're not forced into the kind of Spotify model. Well, exactly. And that that's kind of like the, you know, one of the, how to put it, like, if you want a sanitized web, ultimately then you don't get to participate in the messy, dirty, speculative battles that end up forging standards, right? And so, right. you know, on our last podcast, we had Jacob from Zora on here discussing hyperstructures, right? And one of the ideas, I think this speaks a little bit to what you were describing, Adam, like one of the ideas he puts forward there is being like, actually, you know, we've seen through uh, Uniswap, so with decentralized exchanges, that ultimately, and I mean, talk to me about like, you know, some of the messiest, ugliest experiments in, you know, speculation and, and sheer greed. Like, you know, we've seen that play out in the DeFi space with people trying to rent seek on forking, you know, code and, and et cetera. And he's like, and yeah, and by the end of it, most people would agree that Uniswap won and the better idea won, right? The better, more open, less rent-seeking idea won. And so, yeah, on the day-to-day, -day, you could jump into that conversation and find all the negative examples. And don't get me wrong, there's a whole kind of side industry now of, I would argue, a lot of kind of very inc like incumbent media organizations, incumbent kind of arts organizations who are really intent on pointing out all the ugly examples. But over time, I completely agree with you. Like the the better standards tend to emerge. And it's actually really advantageous and it's a great feature of this space that we're even able to dive in to the messy process of debating these standards in a, ba in a battle place of, of ideas. Like that, that is a great privilege in opposition to the standard of, let's say, a few years ago where exactly as Holly said, 
you get a couple of very well capitalized companies being like, hey, this is the way music's going to work for the next X amount of years. Yep. Yep, totally. And on top of Uniswap kind of winning that 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 era of decentralized trading, those protocols are also now extremely well hardened to all sorts of technical and social engineering attacks that could be leveled against them. So mm -hmm. I, I think just, yeah, generally people are not, we are not, society is not used to seeing new structures built out in the open, attacked out in the open, hardened out in the open. Mm -hmm and participating and having that agency uh, along the way. It's certainly outside the comfort zone, I think, of, of what we're used to, but what it's, it's just such an exciting place to spend time. Yeah, and, and it also makes me think, you know, about how a lot of regulation that exists in the, you know, traditional financial industry is oftentimes in direct response to things that happen. You know, it is a very mm -hmm. reactionary sort of yep. space that exists, and so, you know, absent like a strong regulatory hand, we are going to make these mistakes in public. <laughs> and, you know, I'm, I'm not super deep on DeFi in terms of, you know, any, anything beyond the mainstream. But it, it's interesting to know that like, th these things are going to play out all over again. But there's like this hyper visceral nature to it where, yes, these things are playing out. But weirdly, like it's moving faster than anyone could ever regulate it. And things better solutions are arriving that don't require someone to sit in a room and write down the rules. And so <laughs> that's mm -hmm. just fascinating to me. Yeah, it's really organic, the process. But so speaking of everything being kind of like out in the open and legible, maybe we should shift to <laughs> context. Yeah, context. Who, wants to, who wants to take a stab at, at explaining to people completely uninitiated uh, what context is? So yeah, with context, we wanted to build a tool for people to look at NFTs. That was actually the first idea. We we thought that we could, there wasn't a lot of great spaces to look at NFTs. And so we started building out a, a gallery product to, you know, show NFTs off at full resolution, you know, thinking that we could be the very best NFT gallery viewer. Mm -hmm. Then we started digging into a lot of the technical details about how you present NFTs and how you track NFTs and how you even know what NFTs are sold and for what. And essentially, <laughs> we started building like, you know, or I started building on the technical side. Oh, there's a... We're coming for you. <laughs> the feds. <laughs> I do live pretty close to a fire station. What we started building it was, you know, we had to build a lot of this NFT infrastructure from the ground up just to even get the table stakes of viewing an NFT, getting the table stakes of an NFT gallery product together. And so what we found is, okay, we've now spent a, a good amount of time just getting all the NFTs into our own system, you know, trying to do this decentralized thing. And we realized, okay, well, this feels fairly static, you know, a, a gallery product. Like what is the and there are also, there are actually a lot of great projects in the space right now doing you know actually quite good gallery products like shout out to Gallery SO I, I think that it, it's a very valid space but it wasn't the thing that um, interests us at the time and we decided okay well when we started pulling together feeds of activity off of all of the things we we're indexing so once we started tracking sales and started tracking you know every time an NFT has been moved or minted we realized that oh this is actually quite interesting in its own right. And so we thought that, okay, showing NFTs in a feed is, you know, it's it's kind of this web two idea of like, you know, the Facebook news feed, but it's also very much not that because 
you know, to, to post into a context feed or to have your activity show up, it requires some amount of skin in the game and some amount of investment just by virtue of having to pay gas fees. Mm-hmm. And anyway, this is all a long-winded rant to say that we found that the the thing to work on was building a great feed product because exploring what's going on in Web3 is kind of this really interesting activity to try to let me let me start over we we thought building feeds was so interesting because web3 moves so quickly that yeah. it's not one thing and it's not stagnant and that's where a lot of our product thinking has been since we eventually we ended up did we ended up shipping our project in October of this year and a lot of our thinking since then has just been how can we make context a feed of everything that's happening in Web3 that doesn't feel stale as new concepts and primitives are added to the stack? Adam, maybe you want to jump in and kind of give some more background on how we're thinking about that. I think in essence, like there's no simple way to explore Web3 right now. If somebody said, hey, I'm interested in NFTs, like where, where do I look to see like what's going on right now and what's happening today? What are the interesting transactions and trades and sales and mints? The answer is like, Twitter, but you have to follow these 45 people or these 100 people. Discord, but you have to join these 30 channels. Maybe get a wallet, check out OpenSea, buy a few of these things, get on some of these group texts, and then maybe you'll start to get a sense for like the heartbeat of the space. After Uh, spending $10,000 too. (laughs) Yes, yes, yeah. Spend a lot of money on gas and so on. So our, our mission is to have, to create like a homepage for Web3 and to have it make it very easy for anyone to start to really just like see what's happening and explore and discover what's happening. And then over time, it, it, it's personalized to your interests. So you can use context to follow wallets that are buying and selling works that are interesting to you. And soon you'll be able to use context to also follow along projects. So mm-hmm. if you were interested in Web3 because of the classified, your, your, your amazing collection on foundation. And you'll be able to start following that project on context. And then you'll see other people who have collected classified, like what are they collecting now? Then you'll be able to follow those collections. And so it'll start to create a beautiful algorithmically kind of ranked and personalized feed of all these on-chain events that are happening. And, and mm-hmm. I think maybe most importantly, we're trying to translate like blockchain transactions to plain English. So for if you're yep. familiar with like Etherscan, which is a blockchain explorer, or if you just look at your, your wallet history and whatever wallet you're using, that's generally like indecipherable to yep. most people to understand like what, what is a transaction and what is what are these addresses and, and what are these contracts and tokens about? So what context does is it just kind of puts all that in plain, plain English. So it says that Matt bought this NFT from Holly for this amount of money. And oh, by the way, that's interesting because that was the highest ever sale of that of that collection. Also um, known as a wash yeah. trade. <laughs> Actually, no, you, you joke, but like no, you no, joke, I know. That, that goes to the name of the product. And, and it's sort yeah. of an unrealized dimension of what we're trying to build. The name obviously yeah. is context, but w- you know, we hope over time that alongside just translating transactions into plain English and putting them in a feed that we can also start to annotate those transactions and tell you if something was maybe a wash trade or tell you if the person sweeping the floor of this collection happens to be the creator of the collection or tell you if 
the floor price of this collection is rising really rapidly or tell you yep. if this particular new project is being minted by all your friends right now. So maybe you want to take a look at it. So annotating and bringing that meaning around the transaction is really the vision. It's I, I wish we picked a name for something we could achieve in the first three months of the project, which is where we are yep. now. And not, yep. But it'll take time. But that's that's where we're headed. And that's the vision for, the, for, for what we're building. And I do have to say, it is an in- incredible name. Just to reiterate on what you're saying, you know, the there is this kind of paradox, particularly for people uh, new to this space, where exactly like blockchains are all about fairness and transparency and legibility and the public record and history and provenance and all this kind of stuff. And exactly when then people go and encounter an Etherscan and it's a bunch of hashes and numbers in abstract currencies and whatever, right? And it's like, so making that human readable is incredible. And there's so much potential there. I mean, the one thing I recall when I first interacted with Context, I think I jumped into the Discord and it was like the first thing that came to mind for me was I was like, as a journalistic tool, right, the ability to establish stories, human readable stories around real things that happened, whether that be bringing accountability to in the case of wash trading or kind of nefarious activity, or just kind of like documenting history as it's happening, it really needs that kind of human context layer. I mean, it felt what it reminded me of in some ways, which is is maybe an esoteric reference, but I recall when Twitter first became a thing. And there was a period of time where publications, there were all these services that were allowing people to gather together what later became known as threads on Twitter in order to embed them into journalistic articles. And this was like a big thing for a couple of years. Of course, the irony being is that eventually journalism just became people commenting on what happened on Twitter. (laughs) Um, And so a lot of people then just ended up going to Twitter and kind of like (laughs) ditching the middle entity there, right? But that desire to, at the time, this desire to be like, wow, like all this culture is happening in this kind of illegible space where you have to be there at the moment or be following the right person to figure out what the drama is. There were attempts to build tools there that ultimately, you know, ultimately just kind of funneled into Twitter. And I I see an analogy there with, with what you're building here. It's like, there's so much activity. It's very, very difficult to, that's very, very difficult to translate to the average kind of reader. And that feels like a massive opportunity for one, by bringing people into the space, but number two, just communicating all the wild stuff that happens, you know, because, yeah, so 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 as like a, as a tool for establishing that context, it feels like a massive missing piece. Yeah, when you open context, and again, we should reiterate, like we launched context a few months ago, and Luke and I built the first 90% of it, we hired our first teammate just to get it over the line. And now we have a a real team and funding and so on. So I hope people listening to this a year from now are opening context. And what I'm about to say is true. But we hope that when you open context, it has a sort of homepage of Web3 feel to it, where a year from now, I, I expect, in addition to everything that we've already witnessed in the last year, that NFTs will find their way into games. NFTs will find their way more into the mainstream of how people consume music and, and media. And when you open context, what you'll see is the most interesting transactions translated into English that highlight who did what, why it was interesting. And then to the extent you're interested in participating in that as well, we give you the very easiest kind of route to participating. As a concrete example of that, you know, Already, because of the composability of Web3, many projects require that you 
do something else on chain in order to then do the thing, right? So you might have to join FWB, which is a DAO, in order to mint a particular NFT. And so on context, if you see that your friends are minting that project, our button that we give you should say, if you want to participate, great, click here. First, this will go out to, through Uniswap and buy you 75 FWB, and then it will go and mint this NFT and it'll all be wrapped together composably for you and, and simply for you. So tying these threads and translating them and bringing context uh, and having this meaningful entry entry point into the space is 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 the vision and 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 the hope is really like that we can just widen the tent broaden the tent of who's participating because it's just too overwhelming and too daunting and there's too much going on the pace of it is too is too great to be just captured in in, in your in your twitter feed or your discord feed and we're at that point and, and this is i'll, I'll Ask Luke to say more because he's the one always he's the one that really helped me understand this. We're at the, we're at the point with Web three that it's sort of like we're translating from that Yahoo homepage of like here are the seventeen websites that you should care about to like we now need a search engine or some sort of search mindset where everything that's out there is indexed and then it's personalized to what you actually care about in the moment. And so that's fundamentally what we're, what we're trying to build here. Yeah, I think that's a really good way of summarizing it, the kind of the Yahoo directory model, which is where we live right now into kind of this going parabolic and not being able to even keep a lot of state in your head. I think that's why platforms like OpenSea are under such intense demand right now because there's it's the space is already too big to be contained by uh, like a single marketplace or a single space like that. And so how we're thinking about building the engineering of context is we're we just want to index a lot of meaningful on and off chain activity and then you know do the translation work that Adam mentioned. It really is kind of a lot closer to building something like a search engine than just like building a gallery viewer or even a, a marketplace that is concerned with certain types of assets. We hope to show things much, we hope to show activity that's much bigger than just NFTs. Yeah. Yeah. That's really interesting. You said so, you both are kind of talking about like deciding what the most interesting or important kind of activity is. And so I'm really curious if that's like something that a kind of individual would self-curate or do you imagine people following other people's kind of curated idea of what the most important transactions are? I think we definitely want to, you know, remove a lot of the complexity of having to follow stuff as possible as much as, much as possible. And mm -hmm. the neat thing is that there's already a lot of curation that happens on blockchain just by virtue of the way that people transact on them. And so as much as possible, I'd we want to lean into the fact that people are doing a lot of interesting economic activity and using that to curate, you know, the initial graph of how you want to expo explore or traverse what's going on on chain. But, you know, in terms of more manual curation, because not everything has economic value directly attached to it, like certainly aware of that. I think that's something that we are still trying to figure out and explore. I think there's a lot of cool projects in this space that are emerging around curation in particular. JPEG Protocol and uh, Gallery.so, I think, are attacking this in interesting ways. And I, I, I would like to, you know, if there was a more decentralized way of curating stuff, I think that that's a, a protocol that Context would happily consume and use for ranking. And so I think that is, we're still, the rules are still being written and the ideas are still happening in this space. But I think curation and hu human like 
human input is definitely something that we want to lean on as much as possible. Understanding that a lot of what's happening in this cultural realm is, you know, very grassroots and you know so decentralized that to to claim that one that context itself could decide what's meaningful is probably a foolish idea. How do people currently? I mean, it, it feels anecdotally to me like a lot of the activity for contextualizing what's happening on chain is happening on Twitter. Are there any other kind of efforts that you've seen in the space to attempt to bring context to transactions? Yeah, it's the short answer is no. There's a very big gap right now. And we, we understand why there's this gap because of building context. It's actually incredibly hard to build and we can talk to why that is. I think it speaks to the nature of the of the medium, but there's there's basically this gap between EtherScan on the one hand, and you touched on kind of the the gobbledygook that is EtherScan for most people, and then uh, basically just like a, a a blog post or a media story about an NFT collection on the other hand, mm-hmm. right? Yep. So like Crypto Coven is mooning, let's write a Bloomberg story about it. Yep. That's that's one piece of context. And then the other is like, okay, just go look at the contract on Etherscan and look at the transaction volumes and try to figure out which wallets are participating and so on. So it's a it's a fairly wide gap. And and yeah, it's it's a hard it's basically hard to do a, a algorithmic translation of blockchain data into human readable narrative in the form of yep. a product. But that that's what we're what we're attempting to do. And I'll, I'll just say one more word about why why that might why just to give people more of intu- intuition about why it's difficult. If you think about like discovery products or like discovery sections of your favorite social media products, if you open Instagram, there's a discovery tab. If you go to Twitter, there's like a news section. If you open TikTok, the home feed itself is essentially a discovery experience. Mm-hmm. In all of those cases, you're discovering content generated in that app. It's predefined, it's knowable, the universe is entirely scoped to that silo. The engineers who are and product managers who are building the feeds and the, the units of creation are then repackaging them in an algorithmic way to surface what's interesting. What context is trying to do, what we're trying to do is surface what's interesting in what is fundamentally an expanding and sort of unknowable universe of content. We we don't know what the next contract on Ethereum will be or how it will function. We don't know what the next art project will be. We don't know what the future of on-chain music will look like. And so context is trying to create a discovery and explore experience that's that's legible around a content that is always changing. Yep. And so that's fundamentally the challenge of building this product. We think we've figured it out or we have some intuitions about how to do it and, and proof will be in the next couple of versions of the product as we evolve it. The, but, the other thing that's yeah, interesting here too is to, to use the Google metaphor or something like that, you know, web pages, they might have some, you know, JavaScript or, you know, code running, but it, in general, like the content is easy to parse and understand. Like HTML is like a commonly understood standard. You know, we're smart contracts are all like, you know, bespoke programs that are deployed, which just makes it a way more interesting space to be in, in my opinion, but also, you know, adds complexity. Like, what's the first thing we do when we encounter a new smart contract? Well, we have to kind of ask it like, well, what are you? (laughs) And then like, you know, deduce what's going on from there. And doing that at scale, I think is 
going to be one of the most interesting problems to solve. And of course, you know, there are standards, right? Like NFTs all, you know, look and there's a there's a commonly you know understood shape to that but as you move out of nfts and as you move into even like you know DeFi or DAOs, there's just so much like custom functionality and code that if we can help people decipher that at scale i think is just that's kind of like the holy grail of the product that we're, we're looking for yeah especially as games and other things move on chain too yeah that makes a lot of sense i mean we discussed a little bit with jacob zora this idea of kind of per, the permissionless nature of curation in the space and that being you know for some people actually coming from like a web 2 mindset like a bit of a head fuck for one of a better term what what's kind of, so, so just to reiterate there like what's kind of exciting about this space in a way is right let's say holly and i mint an nft one of the conditions of that is we're kind of inviting anybody to present that work in potentially infinite contexts right and so simply following that a work sells doesn't really tell you that much about why it's sold or how it's sold. And as you said, with with the, the proliferation of all these different kind of increasingly custom contracts, like all these different, let's say, the idea of a sale being tied to a DAO that or the idea of a sale being tied to, you know, a social network. I mean, going on the context page uh, right now, you can follow, for example, what members of Friends with Benefits are interacting with just becomes increasingly important uh, important if we really want to fully explore this idea of there not being like a one size fits all right because the the simple the simple legible statement that something sold is such a microscopic part of the story that if anybody else wanted to replicate or or learn something from that activity happening you would need to have some contextual system in place to make that readable yeah yeah i have a question this is maybe tangential, but I'm seeing more and more people, I mean, for example, the the channel experiment that we did, but also I'm seeing more people experiment with kind of utility for NFTs. So I'm wondering, I mean, I'm sure this becomes this kind of like giant question of how do you deal with all of these different, you know, you have the fine art NFTs, you have these kind of utility NFTs that are maybe tickets, etc. Mm-hmm. Like, how are you dealing with the kind of different categories and just the kind of volume in general. Yeah, exactly. Are there different are there different categories? And of course, some of the utilities are things like voting rights, right? right. Like, does it matter that this NFT holder votes in this particular way? Or Zora's putting the entire protocol ownership into one NFT. Yeah, well, <laughs> that'll be a fun one to track. <laughs> yeah, well, we the, the short answer is that we do our best to explain what you're looking at. And right now, it can be difficult if, for example, you're looking at something uh, more abstract, like a governance vote or a voting token. It's much more straightforward if you're looking at a piece of digital art. One of the things we learned building the first version of Context, which is, by the way, we should probably drop that the URL is context.app in case people are on some insurance website or something now and very confused. Um, (laughs) Actually, I will say this Context... uh, no doubt, partly in uh, due to the incredible name, has been one of the most cited projects here in the last six months. <laughs> awesome. So if people have been listening, they're very familiar with it. That's true. <laughs> Thank you. Well, like, yeah, so like the first version of the product, it looks like a gallery, right? We have very large imagery, sort of white walls. And, and we realized that that's not going to cut it because of exactly what you just asked about, which is the evolution of NFTs themselves 
away from just being kind of these works of digital art to now having all these different functions. And as Luke pointed out, a smart contract is really a computer program and therefore it could be anything, it could do anything. And so we've had to actually fundamentally redesign the product so that we create containers in the feed that can capture all of that interesting texture, complexity, and variance between these different transactions and different NFTs and projects. And so what, what's coming in the next month or so from us, you'll see is just like a, a kind of reimagining of how the product works. We create spaces that can be filled with any, really anything at all. Uh, it doesn't have to essentially just be a, a, a JPEG. And, and that's a reflection of that change that you've, that you've highlighted. Yeah, another thing we've learned while building the product that we're we're still iterating towards is the idea of an actor in the space is very amorphous in an interesting way. So if you take the example of a DAO like FWB, yep. certainly like the DAO is the sum of all of its members. So you might want to see what everyone in FWB is doing, and you can currently do that on context. But you know, there's also in more. There's other ways you can slice that, which is, you know, maybe a DAO is buying NFTs in its own right, like a collector DAO. Fingerprints DAO is a good example of this. Also Flamingo. Or what if a DAO, you know, is has a governance vote where, you know, people in the DAO are doing things kind of to the DAO, you know, mutating the state of the DAO. And so you can kind of slice this on in different like dimensions and axes. And I think kind of the 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 big excuse me, uh, the next step here is to, you know, help people's identities kind of shine through these different feeds and these different aggregations, because ultimately it isn't really about, you know, what's being sold or being, what's being sold is only part of the story, you know, telling the story that like, Hey, a DAO collected this piece or, Hey, you know, like this was a really important governance vote or, Hey, like this governance vote is like, you know, very controversial or something like that is are all like dimensions and you know things that we want to bake into the product as we move forward and building a container for the art is one first step there excuse me building a container for you know really any activity is our first step there so yeah that makes sense i wonder if we move maybe big picture now most people when they think about nfts at this particular point in time are familiar with dynamics such as you know the the kind of auction site right and there's a lot of tools currently on context to see you know who's bidding on what what it's kind of cool you can see how long you've got in order to be able to participate in that particular particular auction when we had jacob on last week he was discussing how at the moment he's kind of nouns pilled and is really excited um about that particular implementation of an nft right so you you're it's ostensibly buying into this a CC0 public, what would you say, like art project for one of a better term? He's excited that it, the IP is all open. The IP is and, all open. Yeah. And I wonder, like, between you both, you know, is there anything happening in the space at the moment that you think augurs where things might be going or just little projects that get you excited? I have one thought on this, but I, I'm also curious what Adam has to say, which is, the biggest change in NFTs from a year ago to now, or the two biggest changes, I think, are a shift away from one-of-one one fine art NFTs. And I think that's yeah. because 
that is a very skeuomorphic way of selling art. And also because there's a lot less of a community angle in that. And that doesn't mean everything is going to turn into like a an ape PFP. But I do think that even smaller runs of things are definitely where things are going to be going. I think the Tomb series, uh, which I, but you're a part of and I'm helping with too, like the Tomb series, that's a 170 NFT run, which I think is going to be kind of closer to where things are going, where people are going to use NFTs to build these tight-knit communities. Nouns is a great example of that too, in terms of like, you know, it's a new NFT every day, but it's still not the same thing as like a, a 10K ape PFP. And then the other thing, which is related to here too, and also Nouns is a good example of, but there's other projects is the composability of it all. I think Loot was this really interesting, you know, brutalist foray into like, what if you, you know, just went to straight to like the content, you know, what, what if we, what does it mean to create an RPG together on chain? Mm -hmm. And then you saw this flood of derivative projects and then, you know, toads, cryptodes is another example. What if you just made cool pixel art CC zero and then let a ton of derivative projects flood the scene. And of course, you know, not all of those projects succeed. And this kind of speaks to the point about experimentation and, you know, energy and things like that, where there are going to be a lot of failures. But I think some combination of really thoughtful collections and composability are going to be underpinning a lot of the future of the space. Adam, what about you? I love that. Those are awesome examples. I would say like the biggest change from a year ago, you know, this quote from Carl Jung, that's people don't have ideas, ideas have people. And it's like a year ago, it's like people had NFTs. And now it's like, no, NFTs have people, <laughs> right? Where like, it's, it's less like I own this work and more this meme is growing. And you yep. can, the evidence of that it's growing is that more people are participating in this meme or this yep. community. Yep. And I, I think we're, we're seeing that with collections. I think people don't understand why collections are popular. I think that's why they're popular. It's not that people are like dying to like change their avatar, although changing your avatar is just a good idea of that meme flexing on everyone and, mm -hmm. and growing. And so I just, I would expect like an acceleration of that trend that you will see more and more projects that have a kind of life of their own that are sort of essentially meme driven, community driven, and that suck you in because they're exciting to be a part of. I think they'll find expression in new places, like, like in games. Games take a long time to build. Games, especially good games, take a long time to build. And this technology has only just started to become possible to, to sort of use at all or, you know, use in games. And there are some, we won't go into it here, but like obviously some technologies that allow you to use NFTs at scale without mm -hmm. a high cost that could work in games. So I think you'll see games or things that you squint and they feel like games. And yeah, like, you know, the 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 biggest thing at Facebook is building the metaverse apparently and but like <laughs> the, the, their metaverse right now like if you, what is the killer app of the Facebook metaverse it's Beat Saber Beat Saber <clears throat> is probably ninety nine percent of what's interesting about Oculus in the mainstream and Oculus is ninety nine percent of what's interesting about the metaverse at Meta so I, you know games or experiences that are increasingly rich I think will mm -hmm. become more and more common over the next few years what's Beat Saber Okay. Well, Beat Saber is, I'd say like YouTube is, is uh, your friend there. Uh, it's basically a rhythm 
game where you put on the Oculus headset and you're slicing blocks that are coming at you on the beat of a song. And it's like if you were a nerdy kid like me and you played Dance Dance Revolution or any of those mm -hmm. rhythm games, you'll be very much at home playing Beat Saber. But but what's what's interesting about it, I think, for this conversation is that it's the first great example of what makes VR special and interesting and fun versus like these kind of uncanny valley second life experiences where you're like why am i here and doing this um and, and that's so, also why why meta had to buy that game because it was the yes. best game on the oculus <laughs> yeah right. exactly yeah that that makes a lot of sense i mean it is quite worthwhile i think maybe even to discuss the metaverse a little bit here because it's something we've debated quite often we were actually debating it with someone last night but this idea of very kind of like long-standing Law Murrowman vision of like a skeuomorphic representation of reality being the thing that gets everybody involved. What's really striking to me about the nascent kind of NFT space, the Discord space, is it's like you have all these really engaging cultural, emergent kind of cultural dynamics that don't need that kind of high poly interface in order to to be fun and and feel real right like if anything the the kind of skeuomorphism and the kind of the fetishization of like a high poly simulation of reality always ends up kind of disappointing it's it's striking to look at beat saber and see how you know the graphics are fairly you know 80s yeah it's, it's <laughs> like it's not it, it's not it's not attempting to kind of to, to to simulate you know real life in terms of its visual representation but yeah, so I, I wonder, I mean, like, how do you all feel about this idea of the metaverse? Putting our putting our kind of like our biases on the table, I think our argument, can't speak for Holly, is that, you know, it's kind of already there, but some interfaces are just kind of more more necessary than others. Well, first of all, I, I think that the 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 pixelated ape PFPs are a lot closer to the metaverse than like people want to think in terms of just mm -hmm. providing new ways for people to identify with themselves and online. I think that's one of the most notable parts about the Twitter NFT PFP feature, which is you're, and even just like why apes are taking on as a whole. It's, it's really interesting to me that people like, you know, Steph Curry or, you know, Paris Hilton are changing their profile pictures to cartoons. And I think that's yeah. really not notable, even if it's, you know, even if people think the cartoons are silly, it's like, wow, these really famous people where, you know, Steph Curry's brand and what he looks like seemingly is way more interesting than, you know, this ape. But yet, you know, here we are. His profile picture on Twitter is an ape. And I think that, you know, basing the metaverse on these skeuomorphic representations can only go so far in terms of just, you know, is that really where people are going to want to spend their time? I guess we'll see. But at the same time, I think having people con conceive of new forms of identity definitely feels like the quote unquote metaverse to me where you can have these shards of identity you can have these you know art projects that help compose who you are and that seems like a really valuable thread that i'm excited to see where that goes we're in the metaverse right now i'm like sitting staring at my laptop each of us is represented by like a squiggly waveform <laughs> i see you but i don't see you right so we're, we are in the metaverse it's already here and it's just going to become I think gradually more textured and richer. I certainly don't think it's something to be afraid of because it's it's well maybe there's some things to be <laughs> some things to be <laughs> sad about. But 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 it's also like I think 
even though it's already here, I think the the difference between the built environment that we knew and the metaverse that is coming is is probably as big of a difference as the Stone Age and the built environment. Like in other words, just like being in nature versus being in a in a city. And then like mm-hmm. right. there's being being in a city and then being in the metaverse. It, it's like hard to imagine not seeing the built environment when you're walking around a city and just like imagine just walking around a grassy version of Manhattan. And and so like it will become hard to imagine the metaverse not existing, but I think it'll sneak up on us because I think it'll be gradual. I don't think it's gonna be like, oh, then tomorrow meta launches the metaverse and we're all in it. It'll be more mm-hmm. like, like I said, like we're we're in the metaverse now people will consume this in their own little metaverse. And over time, it's just going to get richer and richer and richer in the same way we went from like straw huts to skyscrapers gradually. So it'll happen faster than that, but it, it will still be kind of a like, wow, I guess we're in the metaverse now. It didn't go exactly, it didn't take the path I exactly imagined, but yeah, we're definitely here. So I don't know. That's how I that's how I view it for what it's worth. Yeah, and I think it's also maybe a generational thing. I mean, the person we were talking to last night was saying that 50% of American kids are uh, in Roblox, which I think is pretty telling of uh, where things are going. But yeah, we also have been thinking a lot about kind of identity play in the metaverse and, and what can be opened up by being able to perform through other people, through people's voice models, through people's artistic stylistic models i think a lot of the stuff's gonna get really weird and really fun so yeah i'm also not scared about it <laughs> no not at all and, yeah and exactly as you say it's gonna be like a really gradual i mean because a lot of it's it's really striking how you know a lot of the dynamic play between you know managing for example multiple identities managing pseudonymous identities you can go back to kind of 90s wired you know, like whole earth culture or whatever. And then these were mm-hmm. dynamics that people discussed in detail of, of saying, yeah, it's so strange, you know, like by night I'm this warrior in a forum, you know, and by day I go to my day job and it's like, yeah, just over time, gradually in the, in the long. I think the meme is while you were out with your friends, I mastered the sword. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mastered the blockchain while you were having fun. Yeah. But, but, but it is this in, in the, in the scope of history is this really small sliver of, of, you know, what the iPhone being like barely over a decade old, where we're trying to reconcile these multiple identities that we have. And it's really quite common. I mean, we go, you know, we have the odd experience of, of being touring musicians. We, we at least did in a previous, what feels like a previous life where, you know, all of a sudden, you know, simply through, manifest through various identities that you perform online, you can go to a room across the other side of the world and a bunch of people turn up, you know? And so th- these, yeah, these dynamics, it's, it's just really, it's, these dynamics are kind of already there. And I feel like we're already kind of working our way through them. But as you said, there's just going to be more and more interfaces and experiments in in fully expressing them. And that aspect to me, I find like quite exciting, despite the fact that, you know, there, there, there will be some things that lost in that process uh, kind of inevitably. Yeah. it, It is really fascinating that, you know, the, one of the visions of social media when, when Facebook really came about was that, you know, you're, you're going to have an identity tied to your real name and face mm-hmm. But then, you know, even in the Web2 social landscape, if you open up Twitter or Instagram, both of those apps have built in native account switchers to kind of go mm-hmm. between your different voices and identities. And so if the metaverse is an extension of that, certainly you're not going to be one thing in the metaverse, but probably sharded many things. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I think that's probably what scares people 
a lot about the metaverse. And, and it was one of, to your point earlier, it was like one of the criticisms of like, you know, you, you don't know who's a dog on the, on the internet yeah. or whatever the joke is, right? So we're not comfortable with the idea that we might be multiple selves. We're barely comfortable with the idea of what self is. And so to confront that through technology is sort of terrifying, I think. But yeah, we're already, again, to the point that we're already in the metaverse. And to build on what Luke was saying about account switching and, and, and sort of avatars, the other thing that's interesting about Web3 is we've seen this rise in a non-culture. I mean, a non-culture has been around and a big part of the internet, but kind of like on the side stage. And now as Web3 goes kind of mainstream, there's this whole debate about, you know, and it's been in the news this week about like, how much should you even respect someone's anonymity? And even the notion of doxing is like, is an interesting one. Like, which identity are you doxing? You know, it's like, <laughs> you, 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 do, you doxed me. Doxing sort of implies I'm one thing. And, and, the, and the, the outrage over the doxing of the Bored Apes team and so on. So anyway, I think this is all, these are all these interesting social questions that are, we're, we're confronting as a result of being kind of like dragged willingly or unwillingly into the future. Yeah, it started with Satoshi, like, you know, he used this, or they are this anonymous entity. And I think, you know, that's only going to intensify as these really valuable products and experiences are made by people who aren't public with their name or face. Yeah, it's interesting with the board apes. There was also some discussion of whether or not it was purposely doxxed because... Anyways, that's just tangential. I won't bring that up. But um, yeah, I've I've definitely seen pitch decks with anonymous characters, like for credibility. You know, like this this I don't know cartoon dog is uh, vouching for this project, which is really well. That's also one of the great. It's one of the great innovations in the sense of of being able to kind of have credible pseudonymity, right? Like the ability to be able to establish a verifiable identity for someone who you know has made a character for themselves feels like because of their activity which goes back to context exactly it feel, <laughs> feels like a, a huge leap yeah and we're definitely yeah we're definitely in this camp i mean i think that like the whole doxing pseudonymity there's also parallels in a way with some of the i, I kind of hate this term but the deep fake culture stuff that, that we've been working with for a long time and it feels like maybe you know one let's say opportunity problem coming down the road that's going to people are going to have a hard time getting their head around is the idea of saying, you know, you know, what happens when the identity of a Steph Curry or a Paris Hilton becomes a permissionless identity, you know, when other Mm. people are able to LARP and create and act in their likeness or in their, for example, like artistic style, these are all issues that are coming in the not too distant future. And it feels like the, you know, these tools of provenance, verifiable identity, tools that can build context around that transition are going to make that <laughs> that kind of quite wild and abstract psychedelic leap that much more manageable. I mean, who's going to be the first celebrity to license their likeness to the creative commons? That'll be a big moment. Because right now, if you're an ad agency and you want Steph Curry to like sell your macaroni and cheese, you can't just like, you know, deep fake him and and uh, sell your macaroni and cheese. But, but what what if he what if he put his likeness out and said, yeah, anyone can do that. I, I'm an NFT. I'm a noun, or whatever it is. I mean, that that would be a big moment, and that would be an interesting embrace of the ethos of where this is trending. And yeah, the the sort of 
end of property rights as we knew them and the beginning of something just fundamentally different. Yeah, I mean, that's definitely something we're experimenting with, with Holly Plus, kind of making the voice available to anyone and then having certain instances that are kind of approved by a specific community. So you can have kind of bootlegs that just kind of run in the wild and then you can have official kind of sanctioned versions as well. Exactly. Yeah, that's I mean, so cool. with image rights, it's tricky. I mean, I know for sure that you know, for example, like 3D models of Cristiano Ronaldo are already being built and stewarded and, you know, distributed to partners, right? So like Nike can make the ad with his likeness, uh, with his permission, but that's all very locked down. And yeah, that's exactly what we've been thinking about with Holly Plus is it's like, okay, we start with the voice because we know a lot about voice tech where, yeah, ostensibly like we produce tools where anybody can use the voice to create anything. But only some things are verified by by Holly Plus DAO members. So technically, then you're able to distinguish between what would maybe classically uh, be described as a deep fake, like a you know a, a permissionless usage of the likeness, and something that Holly herself would approve, right? And I think that those dynamics are, I, I agree, completely interesting and, and open up. It is like a nouncifying of you know, meet people, <laughs> like meet, identity, you know, but that, but that, that is, it does feel like there's, there's a great deal there. And to be honest, you know, this is kind of like the March of time. It's like it with the advancement of techniques that the, the more we exist in a, in a virtual context with the advancement of being able to generate the likeness of people in that virtual context, increasingly with higher fidelity, you know, it's not a question of whether or not that's going to happen. It's more a question of how that's going to be governed and managed in a way that is fair for the celebrities or the personalities involved. That's kind of our our mm-hmm. interest in that particular question because it's going to happen. It's already happening at low fidelity, but we're like not too far away from, from that happening at high fidelity. That's so cool. I, as artists, you've definitely explored this more than anyone else I've seen. And with classified, all these different versions of Holly that the computers think they know. And it, I, I love it. I love this exploration you guys are doing of, of what is identity even at the end of the day, where does the boundary of self stop if anywhere? And yeah, it's exciting to see you all pushing that, pushing that forward with your art. It's so cool. Well, thank you. Thank you. That's very kind. I have a question that kind of jumps back into like 25 minutes ago and maybe it's way out of context now, but I just selfishly am curious what you both Think about this because you both brought up as kind of things where where you see if you're kind of like NFT trend forecasters, <laughs> where you kind of see things going more towards kind of being part of a community, etc. I'm really curious because of the pace that this space moves in, you know, how does it work when you are then part of a community and then the next thing comes out and then you kind of jump over to this next community. Like how many communities can you be a part of and how sustainable is this kind of mm-hmm. focus on community? And what do you think would maybe be the next steps after that? Well, I think you're starting to see this shift like ever so slightly. One of my favorite recent NFT projects is Shields, which mm-hmm. is by John Palmer and Timothy Luke. And I think some other folks and it's such a cool project. It's like an on-chain like shield builder where you you buy, they had like a mint of 5,000 blank shields and then you can use their program called Emblem Weaver and it makes like a SVG on-chain that is your custom shield. And it's such a cool project. It It's like masterfully executed. 
and they just released it by tweeting about it. It's sold out in 30 minutes, uh, probably because they have an audience and a following. And there's no Discord. There's no roadmap. The project itself doesn't even have a Twitter. There is a bot that tweets out when people create new shields using the mm -hmm. Emblem Weaver program, and that's it. And I, I think a, a lot of the, those decisions were made because people really are starting to get community fatigue. You know, I, I'm sure John or whoever was making that decision probably didn't want to have to moderate a Discord and engage the community and have community calls and all of these things that you're expected to do. That said, I, I still think community is an interesting word to explore. Not you know, community doesn't equate. Okay, we're going to join another Discord, right? Like Shields still has a community. When when new Shields come out, people you know go to that Twitter bot and say, "Wow, I love this one," or people cheer it on. And I, I do think that there's still a community angle, even though there's not like a Discord or even like its own space to discuss the Shields. Yeah, and I think we're going to see more of that happening. Where you know what community means in NFT is. You know, this the social experience of buying one and talking to other people about it. And that that being said, you know, some of my favorite NFT communities are in fact token gated. You know, like I've I've been I was an artist on the Blitmap project and I'm mm -hmm. I'm in the Blitmap Discord and the Blitmap holders Discord channel, like the token gated channel, is a really great place. And I think that that's probably just because, you know, that's a project people like and care about. And people discuss all, all sorts of NFTs. Or, you know, another Discord I'm a part of, like the Folia Discord, similar sort of vibe where, mm -hmm. you know, it, and I think that's because you know, in, there will be spaces where kind of tastemakers emerge or like groups of tight knit groups of people emerge. And I think all that's great. But I definitely think you're going to see fewer people going the approach. Well, you know, my NFT project has to have a discord so it can have a community. And I think we're going to see more experiments. And I, I also think that's one reason why, you know, selfishly or, you know, otherwise that context has a good reason to exist where, mm -hmm. you know, helping people track and understand communities just outside of the sense of, okay, we're all going to go to this one chat room for a period of time, I think is like a really interesting question to try to unpack. Yeah, that is interesting. And it kind of touches on maybe your origin story of more kind of drop culture, where it's less about having like a specific discord or whatever. And it's more just like these kind of drops that are happening intermittently that then people kind of galvanize around and then share and then it kind of moves on to the next thing yeah yeah when i was a teenager i uh i found out about you know like the the brands like supreme and like nike shoes and stuff like that mostly from reddit and facebook groups mm -hmm. and i actually didn't really have a predisposition to, that i thought the clothes were particularly cool or the sneakers were particularly cool but the thing that drew me in was the fact that people were so fascinated about you know okay, I have to like figure out how I'm going to get these, the, this shirt or how I'm going to get this pair of shoes. And I found that as like a really, really interesting entry point as like a teenager is something as teenagers like to do, just completely obsess over and spend all waking hours thinking about. Yeah. And that, that whole nature and that, that aspect, I think is actually emerging in this space where people are just really excited about where the space is moving and where the space is going. And let's not, you know, kid ourselves. There's definitely, you know, financial reasons. People are hoping to, you know, get alpha or something like that. But I actually think that we're witnessing kind of a shift in culture, you know, wholesale where 
yeah, like the drop culture nature of it, the, the, the idea that me and my friends are kind of going to create like a, a clan or a guild to like, you know, <laughs> experience NFTs and culture, I think is just supremely interesting to me. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. I, I, I was tweeting a while back where th- there's definitely like clashes of generations here in a sense where like amongst our community, particularly, you know, we were acculturated in like music subcultures you know, the past 10 years, there's been largely like a lot of ire and kind of distaste about Spotify and how Spotify in a way kind of created like this Walmart experience, kind of like a one-stop shop for very sanitized experience, a very sanitized experience of let's say 20th century subcultures where it's like, okay, now like if you like metal, you just go to the metal playlist and you get a bunch of metal. And it's like, there's so much richness and like discovery and, you know, weirdness that I, who grew up as like a metal and hardcore kid experienced through being acculturated in those subcultures. And and my tweet was saying, you know, while, while everyone's been complaining about Spotify flattening subculture, we were ignoring that Shopify was, was kind of growing these subcultures. And in it's, it's a very unusual thing for, someone of my generation acculturated in in a different subcultural uh, tradition to look back and be like yeah like you know hype beast and shopify culture just kind of won because it had all of the dynamics that you're describing like all of the excitement of you know finding discovering new things through strange links like getting rare getting access to rare things because you and your small group of friends happened upon the right information that was my experience of growing up like i mean almost to an extent like literally finding a concert was that kind of discovery experience that you bonded with people over like but i think uh, that's the rift here is i think that one is like a consumption of experience and another one is a consumption maybe of material goods and i think that that might be like a generational kind of clash or something yeah Yeah. but but there's a lot of corollaries there for sure the other interesting thing too is you, you point out that drop culture has like this, you know, this subculture where people are exploring and finding new things. Also, the interesting metaphor here is that it has a funding model baked in. You know, yeah, selling absolutely. t-shirts like is a way of funding culture, even if they're they're silly t-shirts. And I think mm-hmm. that's interesting. And also going to the, your Spotify example is super interesting because I mean we've all heard loads of musicians complain about Spotify, you know, rightfully so. I think like, you know, it's it's causing this huge anxiety than the shift in terms of how things are paid for. It's interesting though, because I grew up using what CD, you know, when I was like 13, I hopped into an IRC room and took an interview about how, you know, music has to be transcoded to get access and what CD, you know, I've, I've never really heard a musician complain about that. In fact, I've heard many musicians lament <laughs> the fall of it. And because that was a more unbridled, you know, curiosity where you could actually experience music in every, you know, like, truly wormhole and find new music and mm-hmm. i i wonder what like the what cd like experience uh to the spotify looks like in in the time we live in today absolutely yeah it's true it's definitely an example that comes up over and over again where people lament it no longer being around well there's also something too i mean there's also these purple patches of like inconvenience being the fire in which uh, <laughs> cultures are kind of born right like things become a bit boring when they're standardized and, and sanitized and presented to you and yeah it's but but you're so, exactly- don't, so don't make things too legible okay yeah exactly <laughs> scarcity is also breeding subcultures as well right yeah. because yeah. that's that's part of the shared mechanic like luke usually says one thing a day where i'm like damn that's so true <laughs> 
and it just <laughs> happened on the podcast, like where we lived in an age, we still do of like, you know, absolutely ubiquitous information. Everything is free. Everything is out yep. there. You know, everything is infinitely at your fingertips to your point about the flattening of your metal experience and how it just doesn't feel or sound the same when it's coming through your Spotify uh, playlist while you're drinking your ice latte and scrolling your inbox that it, than it did when you were a teenager <laughs> in the club. And like, yeah, in a way, like scarcity rescued that scarcity, like brought some of that meaning back to information. And that's maybe getting close to what is so powerful about, about, you know, the, the nature of NFTs and, and, and the, the way they bring materiality to a digital medium um, and why, why they're meaningful to people. You know, they're just undeniably meaningful to people. Yeah, and, and, and the, the kind of elegant trick of being able to introduce scarce dynamics without, dis, you know, kind of withholding content from people is, is counterintuitive, but brilliant and, and elegant because you get all of the benefits of, of scarcity and all of the, the, the kind of the excitement. I mean, the, the, the term I've been trying to use online is like a, like a feasible abundance, you know? Where yeah. Yeah. I, I love that because I, I've never really jived when either like NFT supporters or detractors, you know, point call this stuff, digital scarcity. I always feel yeah. like that's missing the point slightly. I mean, yeah. certainly I agree that scarcity is interesting for all the reasons we all just mentioned, but yeah, I, I really love that term because it, scarcity is one aspect that enables like this new funding model and this really open it's 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 a third way of funding stuff online you know there's ads paywalls and then now this yeah and there's just there's just different different levels to be able to engage with it right like i was speaking to a, a media organization earlier and talking about i mean this is kind of an open secret actually i mean anyone familiar with art worlds or music worlds even there's plenty of examples where status games or patronage games amongst the vip section funds the funds kind of abundance for everybody else that stuff was just kind of not transparent but that is often cases what happens i mean the classic example i always like to bring up is which is super esoteric is like you know we're very familiar with the realm of sound art and nobody knows that like you know there's only like two or three people globally who actually pay for sand art. They were actually commissioned the stuff, one of whom is an Austrian princess. You know, but this is, that was just wild, right? But, but that's basically why sound art exists. Yeah. And, it, and, princess. It, and it's really, it's, and it's really cool that she does it. I mean, that's really cool that, that she kind of keeps that, keeps that ball in the air. Right. But like, but generally speaking that, you know, that isn't public information that, that most people experience this stuff through, let's say a museum or something that you pay a $5 ticket to, or, you know, you stream it or whatever. And it's like, yeah, you need multiple levels of support to make abundance feasible and the web two idea that you know everyone should just give stuff away for free for for you know rent it for pennies has never i mean i challenge anyone to 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 show me like what great art was 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 ultimately funded purely through that dynamic you know you need like one of the exciting things for me about the nft space generally is that like all these very digital native art media that you know, generative art, let's say uh, machine learning art, protocol art, which is, you know, a category that I think is really exclusive to Web3, but is absolutely a legitimate new kind of art form, you know, that all of a sudden you're seeing a lot of people because of these, this influx of new funding structures and a new collector base that's kind of interested in weird, often nerdy stuff is all of a sudden able to like have the funds available to fully express what they want to do. And, and if anything, at the moment, I mean, you know, it's easy to kind of poke fun at 
you know, copycat kind of like uh, PFP projects, like the, you know, fungible, non-fungible token uh, projects, I would say, like, you know, like where it's more or less the same idea over and over those again. Are, people, those are stocks, which is fine, you know. But yeah, exactly. <laughs> We're chasing a buck. If anything, there's kind of this, uh, you, there's kind of like a, a healthy a competition of ideas taking place that I haven't seen for such a long time where people are like, how do I challenge myself to make an insane art project? Like we're seeing insane, insanely ambitious art projects. And I'm very grateful for this moment for that. Yeah. I can't say enough good things about shields. And also your point about the museum is really interesting too, because you know, when you go, even when you pay $20 to go to a museum or something, you know, you're looking at the art, most people like the, the, when they see the painting on the wall or the, the the art piece or whatever, that's so disconnected from how it was funded. It's not even yeah. like the, yeah. what you're seeing is like three or four steps removed minimum from, you know, w- when the artist got paid. And yeah. so moving those, compressing those steps is just fundamentally so interesting and unique to the space, I'd say. Totally. And oftentimes they aren't. I mean, without naming names, we definitely have friends who, you know, are involved with the highest corners of, of the traditional art world, you know, being invited to present works at like major biennales and and people would be shocked you know i mean one like the amount of funds it takes to put that together and number two how little of that actually goes to the artist like oftentimes these places don't even pay right and like all the actual financial stuff that makes those big experiences happen that people in many cases rightly venerate um you know there's a whole bunch of like there's a whole bunch of darkness and strangeness uh that occurs there too it's just kind of kept gated in this very exclusive community you know so it's which is why people are losing their minds because they're finally seeing how the sausage is made for the first time (laughs) yeah and it's uh (laughs) and some corners of it are ugly no doubt but you know but there's also parts that are that are quite beautiful and and supportive and and lovely and yeah we'll choose to emphasize those for the time being Um, (laughs) can um, i ask you two a question of course, uh, yeah. Where do you all think, you know, the space is going in terms of like, you know, maybe like the future of, you know, on-chain art or just art, you know, chain art in general? Like where where does that lead you in your thought process? That's a good question. That's a good question, but how the tables have turned. Oh my God, oh yeah. <laughs> it's difficult to narrow it down. I think that like, I mean, our specific focus, we're very, very interested in this like replacing the idea of intellectual property with identity play, like redefining IP, right? Which is very kind of consonant with the NANS project, let's say, but more specifically around identities. I think that that... But even like with the Shields, you know, where people can create something on top of something that you've already created, kind of like enabling a kind of, yeah, wider engagement through making it easy for people to also contribute. Exactly. So that so that's one area I think that like permissionless identity play is an area we're particularly interested in. And I think that that extends also to, so for example, we've had a few people on the podcast and we'll continue to, who are experimenting with, you know, producing like machine learning imagery online. And I'm sure maybe you've encountered this, like in the last year, largely as a result of OpenAI releasing their insane clip models, you've seen this weird new habit of Google Colab publishing projects, right? Where all of a sudden the developer will build on top of some openly available data set and build a kind of an instrument for people to go and create, let's say, infinite images, like crazy machine learning stuff. That dynamic, I think, is really, really cool and gets us thinking a little bit about if if an art project or let's say an identity or even like 
uh, code itself, like in code as an instrument. I think it's really interesting to think of ways to build in provenance and attribution to those dynamics. And I'd be really curious to see more in that realm. And actually, Shields maybe touches on that a little bit, right? Because with the Shield Builder, that is in a sense a kind of instrument. With Classified, most of the pieces made there were made with uh, custom code that we put together with this group, Wolfbear, who are incredible. And that was just part of like the, you know, the, the, the artist group. However, there were a couple there who were that were built in part using open code published through collabs by, in this case, incredible developer called Rivers Have Wings, artist developer Rivers Have Wings, and a guy called Daniel Russell, who've done a lot of incredible work with machine learning imagery. We, at that point, were trying to write them into this contract, kind of without their permission, right? They published this code and we were like, look, like if we end up selling a work that you have even not... you're unaware that you've contributed to this work, but you actually have contributed something valuable to it. We want to write you into that. We've been thinking a lot about how that system could be more streamlined and just a bit more elegant. Like how, for example, if an artist goes out there and is using some instrument that somebody else made, how can we make it more elegant and streamlined to be able to compensate them without their knowing it? Right, which is kind of an interesting new way of funding, like of seeing these instruments as public goods, particularly in the arts, and an interesting, hopefully, new habit of people cutting strangers in to their success. Maybe just to kind of uh, summarize that a, a little bit and to build on that, I think whereas in the 20th century gallery model, we saw this kind of fetishization of like the singular iconic image, I think now we see such a kind of vast volume of images that it's maybe around the mechanic of how someone interacts with that large Mm -hmm. volume of images instead of just fetishizing the one singular iconic image yeah exactly so does that make sense yeah absolutely i I really and that's why i think things are moving to collections not because everything needs to be a 10k pfp but like thinking of that you know work being constrained by an image is dated and then i love this thing about collaborators it it really resonated with me matt when you said the first thing you said when i asked the question was you said intellectual property because i have a relationship with intellectual property that's like hasn't really been the most positive one which is you know when i was 19 and uh, running my first company the the e-commerce one i woke up to a fedex at my door that was like a lawsuit for patent infringement (laughs) from a patent troll. And so I I really, I really, really dislike, you know, a lot of like the idea that you could patent the way that software works just is insane to Mm -hmm. me. And so the idea that we're now have this opportunity to turn a lot of this on its head is just so compelling to me. And so I I really liked hearing your answer to that. And that's the thing is that, that, you know, in our, of our generation, I mean, if we, if we look back to like pre web two, I mean, arguably, right. Like, Arguably, the one of the inceptions of like the Web two conversation was kind of the Napster conversation. It was an argument around these new kind of social ways to exchange files, right? And and the IP wars that came from that, to, in my mind, just seem they seem really dated. And that's the aspect that I find, yeah, personally, really exciting about this is like, oh wow, like Web three, there's all these different tools now on the table to be able to, you know, like avoid the the kind of like I'd say at this point, kind of like kitsch specter of like awful pernicious DRM. DR- and DRM as a word doesn't like, 
like uh, digital rights management isn't actually a bad thing as a word. It's just kind of associated with exactly what you're describing. Takedowns, like (laughs) someone sending you a cease and desist or whatever, right? And also kind of slay this dragon, which I think is uh, across like open source culture or free culture of these ideas that were spawned very much a long time ago. That I also think to a degree were kind of naive that they kind of... Well, it left out the funding mechanic. Left out the funding mechanic. It, it's also open for a, a degree of exploitation and, and, and certainly open for the ability for, not, let's not say bad actors, but, but for big actors to kind of profit a great deal from someone's labor. And so finding somewhere in the middle there, this again, like finding like a fair or a feasible or a virtuous abundance, you know, is like the opportunity and the the big opportunity of, of all of that uh, coming from like an artist's perspective is actually to think that way, right? To have like a kind of positive sum abundance mindset where you're like, actually, no, like, even though exactly with classifieds, like, we don't know these people, they contributed value to us. So if we are successful in selling these pieces, we want them to have a cut of it, even though they didn't ask for it. And I think more examples like that will engender so much goodwill in the space and ultimately are the perfect repost or the perfect kind of retort to people's claims, you know, that which are I think are largely unfounded that, you know, oh, Web3 is all about scamming. It's all about copy mints and whatever. It's like, no, 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 it's the exact opposite, actually. It's not about scarcity and kind of like winner takes all clutching for things for yourself. It's the exact opposite. Like, how do we build tools whereby I can, you know, cut someone in who maybe inspired a piece and and share that goodwill and and grow communities that way. Yeah, I I love that. Not to just keep harping on this, but like when open source software, you know, since it didn't really have a funding model baked into it, it turned out that for, you know, much of its existence, it was a way for corporations to coordinate, really. Like when you look at like a big project, like a successful project like Linux or, you know, the Google Chrome browser, it's, it's all just really corporations working together to make a project that like, you know, meets their interests. And you're describing a version of open source where, you know, that there really is more of a person, like an individual economic like interest being expressed there and i think that that is so fascinating yeah yeah totally and it's 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 tricky too because it's also like the vernacular for this stuff i mean it's really useful there's definitely people who i follow who are trying to come up with new terms for this kind of stuff right but it's quite difficult uh it's it's still quite difficult to to communicate but fundamentally it feels like that's that's where one aspect of this place is going that we would like to put a lot of weight into, which which I think is probably a good segue because we've we've definitely had you on here for a very long time and we appreciate <laughs> it, which is a great segue in a sense. The reason why we want to put weight into it, obviously, is this podcast is called Interdependence. And yeah, and the 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 question that we ask every guest, and we will sadly ask you to answer individually, is what does the term interdependence mean to you? Like, yeah, really. yeah, yeah. I figured I was talking for a while, so I'd let Adam go, but I can I can try to answer. <laughs> You're on a roll. You're on a roll. Yeah, 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 yeah. What does independence mean to me? Well, I I think I've been inspired a lot by seeing you know these protocols and these shifts in value, and so when I think about interdependence, both the podcast, the word, and like the movements I'm seeing right now, I think about individuals coming together to reimagine you know, incentive structures and what's valuable to co-create a future together. And I think that there's a huge sense of optimism in the sense of the word, because, you know, it's, it's one that can, you know, again, the co-creation angle is what's really interesting to me. And that's how I see interdependence. Great answer. Great answer. Yeah. I wish I went first now so that people would forget. (laughs) Uh, Let's say two things. The first is 
on the topic of like Web3 and crypto, all of these projects that people are building are composable, which is another way of saying interdependent on each mm -hmm. other. Mm -hmm. And that's a really exciting feature that we used to, I say we, you know, sort of people in tech specifically would commonly go to work, log into Slack and build things for your company and your company alone, more or less, mm -hmm. with some endpoints mm -hmm. out to others. But now it's it's sort of, you know, fundamentally everyone's on Discord, but really we're all now in shared spaces and even though Luke and I work on context, really we're part of this broader movement of work that relates to Web3. And in a way, these like boundaries between teams and these notions like companies are dissolving and don't really apply anymore. We're building things for each other, with each other, and in an interdependent way. And and so that's, that's sort of like an exciting shift in, in our day jobs. And then more broadly than that, like, to me, when I hear interdependence outside of the context of like this podcast or or Web three, it 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 says to me that we're all in this together. That n nobody, no one knows how to on their own make an iPhone, make a pencil, you know, produce food. Maybe there was a time, a long, long time ago, where you could be a self sovereign individual. And I think there are some people in the Bitcoin community who still want that, that to be true. <laughs> but but for better or worse, we we're just all part of some broader human system now. And I think that's, we're much better off for that. I completely agree. And yeah, it's uh, specifically on this, this kind of dissolution of boundaries between projects, teams, like the new, it would be really interesting to have a, to dedicate an episode, even though it's been kind of there in the lines about just generally new work habits of how common it is for people to just jump into different people's projects constantly. When we were discussing this, we had a long conversation with Scott Moore from Gitcoin specifically about some of the vulnerabilities to open source culture as as wonderful as it is and the term interdependencies came up just to just to just to agree with you on that on that point this idea you know that the in the web3 space one of the foundational principles ultimately is that you know what you're building is there for other people to rely on and you don't really have to worry about that going down right like and so yeah that's that's Really, really well taken. We we are in this together. Well, look, it's been so lovely after many months of name dropping context to get some. I wish there was a word for it, some context uh, <laughs> <laughs> about about what the what the project is. Thanks so much for for taking the time. And yeah, I hope that once you roll out more stuff, we can invite you back on. For sure, I'm excited to see all of this translation process uh, in action. <laughs> Yeah. Thank, thank you, you so, so much. much for having us. Yeah, thank you. No, of course, it's, it's been a real pleasure. Okay, well, have a good day in sunny California, both. Bye. 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 Bye.